This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. If listeners recall episode 8 on the humanist astronomer, they'll remember that I do try to leave my comfort zone with these topics too. Rather than simply share histories and ideas that I've played around with for a while, I also want to push past my own information silo, my own seasoned understanding of what is valuable and what is not, to see what I've been missing. That's why, from the very outset of this podcast's production, I intentionally put a few objects and concepts in the roster that I myself struggle to fit neatly into views of a more humanist world. And sports shoe enthusiasts? Oh my yes, they are definitely a big part of that personal struggle. I've seen references to sneakerheads in shows like Blackish and The Shy, and before researching this episode, I vaguely knew their origin story around Michael Jordan, along with for some blisteringly useless reason, thank you, infotainment-driven online media, the fact that a lot of famous white people, such as Mark Wahlberg, John Mayer, and Justin Timberlake, are proud collectors too. But when a whole Netflix miniseries dedicated to the phenomenon 2020's sneakerheads sported characters who regarded high-end sneaker and trainer aficionados with the greatest of skepticism, I still can't say that I blamed them. Granted, hobbies exist in many different forms and collecting has all kinds of eccentricities, but for some reason the specific object being coveted just rubbed me the wrong way. Sneakers are for wearing out, getting dirty, scuffing up in the process of enjoying high-intensity activities. What was the point I failed to grasp in trying to look fashionable while getting messy? Or even worse, buying something originally designed to be worn out just so that you could not wear it at all? Maybe if these items were only being bought and sold by the excessively wealthy, the kinds of people who buy gold toilets or silk carpeting for their luxury airplanes, it would have made more sense from the beginning for me. But they're not. They're bought and sold by a great many people of the working and middle class, along with celebrities in music, sport, and film, And also, despite the rather distinct and culturally specific backstory in the original trend cycle, they're now increasingly the luxury purchase among millennials, even surpassing the luxury purse market. Which is deeply intriguing to me on a different level, so today we're going to hash out why my first impression of sports shoe collecting as one of the most indulgent, frivolous, and functionally disconnected hobbies I could think of is actually the site of a body of profoundly humanist struggles for greater agency, and why the sneakerheads of the world really do matter when we're trying to think about how to create better policies and cultures for all. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures 
which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're trying on some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the sneakerhead. Okay, so right from the start, I need to reaffirm that I am not a shoe person or a fashion person in general. My family of four kids was dressed in Kmart, Zellers, and Value Village, and amid all the financial anxieties in the backdrop of our household, I never went the route that many kids in these situations often do. I never started coveting a particular brand name as if owning a particular piece of clothing would somehow elevate me and make life okay. It wasn't, for me, an aspirational escape. That's what reading was for. But for many children and adults, owning a brand name product does feel like a game changer. And it's in this context that we go back to the beginning of the sneakerhead phenomenon with the rise of basketball legend Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was an unproven element in the professional league, but an absolute legend already within the U.S. Olympic basketball team, where he averaged 17.7 points per game. Going into a half-million five-year contract with the NBA, he wasn't originally keen on talking to Nike a brand far lower on the courts in those days than Adidas and Converse. Jordan had savvy parents though, and his mother pushed him ahead of his 1984-85 rookie season with the Chicago Bulls to consider Nike's pitch. His dad was also instructive in this deal, being firm that if Nike wanted his son, they needed to give him his own line. Go team supportive parents, right? Jordan came into his first season as the number three draft pick on a team that looked like underdogs on paper. And then the miracle occurred. All three brands, Michael Jordan, Nike, and the Chicago Bulls rose through the ranks together in the late 80s and early 90s. Jordan would align himself with other brands over his career, like in the famous Gatorade Be Like Mike campaign. But it's his relationship with Nike that has made him the most money, over a billion dollars, in his career to date. At the heart of this success story had to be a villain, though, and that's where the story of sneakerhead culture proves particularly fascinating. In this case, the villain was the NBA itself, which famously fined Jordan $5,000 US in that first season for wearing different colors than were permitted on the court. A red and black colorway, that is, instead of the 51% white league standard. Nike, however, saw the NBA's decision as an excellent opportunity to double down on marketing, so it paid the fine and kept paying the penalty while making a big splash about Michael Jordan's 
playfully rebellious streak in product ad campaigns that ran alongside his exceptional first season as an individual and team player for the Bulls. Amusingly enough, that first fine probably wasn't for the iconic Air Jordan 1s that fans flocked to buy in aspirational support of Jordan's rise to fame, despite NBA's oppressive rules against being a stylish champion on the court. No, the shoe that was first banned was the Nike Airship 1984, designed by Bruce Kilgore, a prototype of sorts for the coming Jordans. But every ensuing season, Nike dropped a new Air Jordan design, which went a long way to building brand loyalty. Fans of Jordan's rise and his role in the equally rising star of the Bulls were kept relentlessly hungry for the latest trend with which to signal their endorsement and participation from the sidelines in his ascent. Jordan's rise, Nike's rise, the rise of the Chicago Bulls, all were the people's rise as well. The people being predominantly young African-American men in the U.S. who were and remain a key demographic in sneakerhead culture. Nothing happens in a vacuum after all, and beyond the obvious cultural resonance embedded in an origin story involving a brilliant black man just trying to make his way in the world being hounded by big corporate NBA for the slightest nonconformity, there was also a significant culture of swag tied to the concurrently popular hip-hop scene, where major players signaled their sense of arrival and affluence through the accessories they sported, including premium footwear. I mean, you don't get any more obvious about this than in the lyrics to Run DMC's My Adidas, a 1986 song about the singer's love for their footwear, which led to the very first endorsement of a musical act by an athletics company. There's an apocryphal story that the song was written on angel dust, which I think was quite important in helping the group avoid accusations of having written the piece expressly to get an endorsement. When the song goes, and out of my sneakers I did speak, I wore my sneakers but I'm not a sneak, there's a real sense of a manifesto embedded here, of material culture saying something material too about the people who use it. But as manifestos for shoe culture go, you probably can't get much more iconic than Tommy Smith who on October 16, 1968, stood on his podium to receive a medal for breaking the 20-second barrier in the 200-meter sprint with a black power salute and his puma suedes in hand. Those flexible yet thick-soled suedes would carry their civil rights roots into the 1970s and 80s breakdancing scenes, inextricably tethering well-styled feet to one's commitment to the everyday fight on the streets. So yes, Jordan's drops were in the form of savage dunking on the court, rather than new singles or full albums, but the same sense of how one performs celebrity and resistance manifested equally across these disciplines. Hip-hop artists and basketball superstars both needed their high-quality sneaks to stay fresh and authentic. And anyone who was truly part of the culture 
the community, the whole vibe of the era, would best be looking to buy the material comforts and swag that would help them stay their freshest too. I think it will surprise no one that one of today's recommended resources is Netflix's 2020 docu-series on Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, a surprisingly compelling homage even if you're not the biggest basketball fan. Hilariously, I should add that my own aversion is sensory. The sound of the sneakers on the court was always difficult for me to process, but I can watch a game just fine with the volume down. However, you might be surprised by my next recommendation. Marcia Chatelaine's franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, which also came out in 2020 and which potently explores another story of how black culture and communities were drawn into the rise of 20th century corporate brands. In this case, McDonald's. It's an excellent exploration of the ways in which fast food culture allowed for some accumulation of wealth within black communities from the 1960s on, but often also exacerbated disparities and exploitation in the process. This is the twinned dance with the devil in which sneakerheads as a community also exist. Their love for iconic high prestige footwear draws from origins tied to notions of resistance and counterculture, celebrating the rise of black genius and talent in a world that often refuses to make space for either. But this love still ultimately serves the interests of major mainstream corporations. Nike, Puma, Adidas, Vans. Unsurprisingly then, sneakerheads very quickly found themselves in competition with simple speculators, resellers, and hype beasts. Three terms for groups of people who have far less attachment to the stories around these items and what they represent, and who are simply aware that cornering the market on a high prestige item like a classic Air Jordan can be a great way to make an easy buck and to drive up the overall value and exclusivity of the product in the process. Mainstream white celebrities who show off high-end sports shoes have also recently made many of these brands trendy for white demographics that would not at all have resonated with the original hip-hop, civil rights, and basketball cultures underpinning the early popularity of so many iconic shoes. They just want to emulate their stars, and to dress the way their stars do too. Justin Timberlake may well be paying homage to history with his sneaker collection, but when he rocks a pair of limited edition Don C. Design Nike Air Force Ones in Amex Blue, yes, after the credit card company, just before an NBA All-Star Weekend and general product launch, it's a marketing stunt for his brand, Nike's, Amex's, and the NBA's. When it comes to millennial interest in high-end sports shoes, though, there's another dimension to this performance of wealth and arrival through clothing. Every generation performs affluence differently. In the past, keeping up with the Joneses might have meant buying the latest model of car every year. 
but more recently, people tend to flaunt their financial stability through lifestyle choices that perform their ability to be selective and to use their time for self-care in a way that working classes cannot. Millennials are a strange bunch though, because we don't really have wealth, not at the same levels as preceding generations for this point in our careers. And yet, we were raised all through that era of material signaling of our cultural values. We want to be able to perform a little bit of luxury through our purchases. While buying a home or even a car now often feels challenging though, we can still manifest affectations of class identity through smaller items. Our clothing, for instance. And with Pandemic 2, a shift to more relaxed fashions, including the increasing acceptability of stylized sneakers in the workplace, was only to be expected. In the roaring 1920s, we saw something similar a significant shift away from elaborate bras and an increase in flats over high heels after people had also gone through prolonged seasons of at-home isolation during the global outbreak of influenza. The rising role of Chinese production in the making of today's high-prestige shoes also brings other questions to bear about what the product now represents. Can we still see in sneakers a clear connection to major resistance figures in black U.S. history, or does owning a pair now simply represent one's ability to access the trendiest swag in today's market, irrespective of its origin story? Fashion has a long history of repurposing the everyday as luxurious. The UGG, for instance, takes its original warm interior design from a highly functional working class boot in Australia that then became popularized in Western surf culture before becoming a luxury urban item in the late 90s, primarily in thanks to mainstream female celebrities and shows like Sex in the City where the boot was completely removed from its original work and sporting contexts. Sports shoe enthusiasts, then, are not simply performing a love for the intersection between aesthetics and functionality, but also the capitalist tension between a whole slew of other socio-political factors. For some, high-end sneakers are tethered to the idea of subversive triumph over the man on his own terms, in his own major marketplaces, even if Nike, Adidas, and other major shoe companies are ultimately the ones who benefit from this struggle. For others, high-end sneakers represent an affirmational longing for the high life, even if it can only be performed through the purchase of more modest and everyday products than it ever was before. As a humanist, then, I have to wonder what the material iconography of luxury will look like as climate change, environmental refugeeism, and the rich-poor divide continue to reshape our world. Where will we perform the illusion of agency and class status next? In the long run, sneakerheads might not be around forever, 
but the intersectional human interests that their passion represents are by no means a single season's trend. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, Wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving.